0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all, stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Before I go, doctor, I turn it over to you. There was a question that came in, are there any desert fathers still around? And I came across his great video, this priest out there in the middle of nowhere up on a cliff church. It's totally awesome. We're gonna play it for you again right at the end. So God bless you all. Thank you for participating in this series of events, and Dr. Howell, thank you for being with us again this third time for this series.
2: Thank you, Father. It's wonderful to be here. So this is the last evening that we'll be together, and I recognize your faces from before, and I want to say thank you so much to all that are on the panel and all others that are listening. Um, I'm very thankful for this opportunity. Father, I, I can't begin to express my gratitude to you for allowing me to be a part of the Institute of Catholic culture, what you 're doing to educate people is just it 's just beyond belief hey and Doctor
1: I, we, right, we just want to say thank you to you and thank God you're on our team because with oh, yeah. your with your mind it's a good thing we 're on the same team
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well speaking of that, you know i'll just begin tonight with a a short story um, i don 't know how many of you know this, but I was a Presbyterian minister for I was ordained for 18 years, and uh, nine of those years, I was an active pastor of a, a parish. And then for nine years, I was also a professor of theology at one of the seminaries. And it was during that time that I was teaching that I began reading my way into the Catholic Church. As I began to, to come into the Catholic Church, interestingly, like un, unlike some converts from uh, clergy converts from other churches, I was exposed to both um, the Western Rite liturgies and also the Byzantine liturgies. And so I came to love both of them as being part of the church, the two lungs that the church breathes with. Uh, But it was the the liturgy. It was the, the sense of what Father Taft was talking about in that quotation, the connection between heaven and earth, that the liturgy brings the realities of Christ's redemption back to us so that we can participate in them. That was one of the things that just swayed my heart, because conversion has to be much more than an intellectual ascent. It has to be a deep, heart-level conversion. And that's what happened to me. And when I knew that that had taken place, there simply was no turning back. The 20 years that I've been a Catholic have been clearly the most joyful of my life, simply because I can participate in the liturgy of the church. Well, tonight's session we've we've titled The Struggle of the Interior Life Beyond the Desert. Last week we talked about uh, some of those uh, things that the Desert Fathers identified as being uh, problems, as being vices that we needed to struggle against. And just I want to summarize those first two sessions in just about five minutes before we go on tonight. The first one is to remember that primordial father a desert father who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who especially, as we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, was led out by the Spirit into the desert in order to do battle with the evil one. He need not did not need to do battle for himself, but for us. And he went there as our representative and as one who, as St. Athanasius said, became the Son of Man that we might become the sons of God. The second thing that we, we, we drew out of that was the importance of, if we're going to be apostles, agents of change for good in our world, then we need to remember that, it, that the changes that need to come into the world are, are come through us. They come through the channel of the human heart. And that's why I tried to share with you that, that phrase that what we desperately need in our world today is not changed by legislation, but changed by excavation. That is by digging deep into the human heart to deal with those vices that each one of us struggles with. And that's why the Desert Fathers then challenge us by their example and their words to probe deeply into the interior life. I heard a story recently that kind of was a sad story, but it does... Reveal the difficulties that we face in our world. There were several monks, I think about a dozen, actually Eastern Rite monks, that were, you know, having monastic life together. They were, they were praying, they were seeking holiness together, and they got a new bishop. And the new bishop told the abbot of the monastery, uh, "You don't need to be in there in that monastery praying. You need, we need priests out in our parishes doing all these different things." And I can understand the urgency that that bishop must have felt in filling the slots that were needed in the various parishes. But I'd like to suggest that such an attitude is very short-sighted because without holiness, no one will change the world. And those, those monks become models for us, for all of us, as to how to what I'll talk about at the end of my talk tonight. And we need to monasticize our daily lives. All of us need to make our daily lives lives of prayer. Well, we saw last week that those, those uh, desert fathers had identified some of those vices, and I'll talk about those again tonight. But one of the essentials for living a holy life and for being the apostles of Christ that he sends us out to be, one essential that we've lost sight of in the modern world is the necessity of silence for our spiritual health, we will never be able to do God's work unless we learn to depend upon Christ. And that comes through silence. There's a book I'd like to recommend that I recently started reading. You probably know of Cardinal Robert Serra from Africa, from Guinea, West Africa. I've been going reading this book that he did called The Power of Silence. And it is a very powerful book. Because he he talks about the fact that we are inundated today with, as he calls it, the dictatorship of noise. All around us, we are being bombarded left and right with messages and with temptations that simply distract us from our need to listen to God. Well, I also came across another older quotation from Father Basil Pennington that I think captured this well. Father Bennington says this, Unfortunately, in seeing ourselves as we truly are, not all that we see is beautiful and attractive. This is undoubtedly part of the reason we flee silence. We do not want to be confronted with our hypocrisy, our phoniness. We see how false and fragile is the false self we project. We have to go through this painful experience to come to our true self. It is a harrowing journey, a death to self, the false self, and no one wants to die. But it is the only path to life, to freedom, to peace, to true love, and it begins with silence. We cannot give ourselves in love if we do not know and possess ourselves. This is the great value of silence. It is the pathway to all we truly want. This quotation then reminds us that when this class is over uh, for many, many months and years, that we'll still always need to seek those places of silence. And that was the balance between, especially in lay people, that's the balance between what St. Benedict talked about in his rule that became kind of the Benedictine uh, mantra or or a saying, ora et labora. The, The Benedictine monk was to pray and to work. And what he really meant by that was that everything in our life becomes a prayer. And whether we're in a monastery or whether we're serving in a in a parish like Father Hezekiah does, or whether we're lay people with families and with children and grandchildren, our whole life needs to become a prayer. And that's why we need the the last thing that we talked about last week, and that is a commitment to stability of place. I was just reflecting upon this. I have lived now in Champaign, Illinois for, well, this summer it'll be 20 years, which is the longest I've lived in any one place in my married life. And in that process, I've been asked several times to go to this university or to that place to move and so forth. And it always seemed that I could not go for various reasons. And usually it was because something at home was holding me down. And it was a responsibility I simply could not give up. And I've come to the realization that God wanted me right here in Champaign, Illinois. And that I had to accept that reality because I have that, that Wanderlust, that desire to always go and see new places and be in different places. And that's, that's why I wanted to be a missionary, I think, when I was a young man. But I've come to realize the value of this commitment to a stability of place. Well, tonight, if you have the outline in front of you that I provided and Andy has provided for you on the website, we're going to talk about several different themes that are really important. The first one is to look at, go back and look again at those ancient deserts that those fathers from Alexandria and Egypt in general, how they found that place of silence with God. And I want to ask the question Uh, Where are these deserts today? Now, wherever you've worked, wherever you've been in life, no doubt you've found to be places that are deserts in the sense, two senses. One, they're lonely places. And two, they're places where the devil exerts his influence. Maybe it's a university like the world that I've lived in for most of my adult life. Or maybe it's a business. Or maybe it's an establishment of entertainment. Maybe it's the internet now or the social media. But the desert that we face today is anywhere where there's no nourishment of our souls. Because the thing that we need more than anything in our lives is to be nourished, to be formed by the Spirit of God in the inner man, as Paul calls him. And so wherever we're working, wherever we're living today, we're going to find deserts out there. But by our facing that desert, by and willing going into that desert to find places of prayer, we will find God's way for us to live analogously to those desert fathers. Now, the question that I'd like us to explore for just a moment is, what do the deserts of antiquity, just outside of Egypt or in Egypt, and the deserts of modernity have in common? And What makes them different? Well, let's think first of all of the commonalities There's no doubt about the fact that people today Are just as lonely and abandoned as they've ever been in history. It doesn't matter how many comforts we have around us how many uh, conveniences we have People today simply have not been able to find a meaning for their lives Now, I remember uh, some years ago, I was at uh, Disney World in Florida, and uh, we were going around this Carousel of Progress thing. Maybe you've even seen it. And in the Carousel of Progress, you go around, you know, and you see this is what it was like in the 1890s, and this is what it was like in the 1920s. And then I remember particularly the 1950s. And here is the modern, you know, 1950s housewife, you know, and she's got all the modern conveniences, you know, that she's got to make life a lot easier where she didn't have to go out. she got a washing machine. She doesn't go out and have to wash everything by hand and so forth. And the underlying message was this is progress because, well, all these conveniences make our life better. Well, to be honest with you, I'm not sure all our conveniences do make our lives better. I'm willing at least to ask that question. And especially with the internet now i'm thankful that we have the internet because we wouldn't be having this conversation Right now, but there's also ways in which this can be very Destructive now obviously there's there's evil things on the internet and they're destructive in that sense But I think a lot of times people maybe even younger people Maybe even older people maybe they go to the internet simply because they're lonely There's a philosopher uh, that you might be interested in reading sometime, and he's not easy to read, but he's very profitable to read. He, I think, he just died a few years ago. His name is Erzim Kohak, and he wrote a book called *The Embers and the Stars*, and it literally is one of the most beautiful books of philosophy I have ever read. I don't know if it's in print anymore, but it's by Erzim. He is a he's a Czech writer who was exiled during communism, during the 60s and 70s and 80s. From the Czech Republic, and then he went back home to the Czech Republic after it opened up in 1989. This book has literally been one of the most beautiful books of philosophy I've ever read. One of the points that he makes in this book is the difference between solitude and loneliness. And solitude is that willingness to be alone because one feels deeply connected with other people. And that's what The Hermit does that hermit, whoever he is, that the father was talking about in the video, uh, or I have a friend who's a hermit in Maine, and he lives a life of prayer uh, 24-7. These people, nevertheless, are deeply human and deeply Christian because they feel connected with other people, whereas other people can be in the midst of huge crowds, in the marketplace, in football stadiums, in basketball arenas, and they're as lonely as they can possibly be because they have no connection with other people. Well, the desert can be a lonely place, and modern society can be a lonely place as well. Those desert fathers like Anthony and Paul of Thebes and Ammonis and all those, they went out in the desert to face their inner demons, and we'll talk about that again in just a moment. But one of the things that they saw that they needed were spiritual resources they were stripping themselves of all the externals of their life in order to go deeply into the resources that were there in our own hearts now the spiritual resources can come from two directions it can come from the outside and it can come from the inside it can come from the outside in terms of teaching in terms of liturgy in terms of sacramental participation but it can also come from the inside and there has to be that symbiosis between the outer and the inner in order to benefit from those things which come from the inside. We can listen all day, we want, to teachers and to preachers, but if we don't have an open heart to receive what is being said or what we're reading and spiritual reading, we'll never be able to benefit from those things. I'll come to some practical suggestions in that way. One of the other commonalities I'll talk about in just a moment is the problem of the noonday demons, or Acidia, or Acadia, as it was pronounced in Greek? And I'll talk about that. So I'll postpone that for for just a few moments. What are some of the differences between the ancient, the places like Skedee and Nitris and other places in Egypt, or even the ones that the, where they went out near Jerusalem and out in those places in the desert? What is it? What's the difference between those places and and modern deserts as well? Well, one I've already implied is that we live in the midst of modern abundance. There's a desert in what I would call, I read a book a few years ago called luxury fever. It's people are just obsessed with owning things, with having more and more things to make them happy. And ultimately, of course, they find out that they don't make them, don't make us happy at all. So those desert fathers remind us of the value of asceticism. And for us as lay people, that probably means living simply as we possibly can, without a lot of frills and and extras in our life, but focusing always on what's most important. You know, John Paul II, before he died, he was talking about the three evangelical vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And he asked the question, how can lay people live a life of poverty? It wouldn't be proper for you or me as lay people to take a vow of poverty, that is not to own anything, because we have families and we have responsibilities within our communities. But one of the ways in which he suggested to young people in the midst of this was to be generous with their married life. And that meant at least two things. One, it meant opening their home to those who were needy. And secondly, to younger people, especially to be open to life and as many children as God wishes them to have. I was kind of joking with my spiritual director this past week as we were talking on the phone because we used to work together. He was the chaplain at the University of Illinois when I was a teacher there. And I was also working with him in the Catholic chapel to combine the intellectual and the spiritual into a beautiful um, woven tapestry for our students. We were reflecting on some of the students that we had come through the university uh, during those days. Now, most of those students now are in their early to mid, some of them even in their late 30s. One of those families now has nine children, right? By the way, I I just happen to know that the man, the mother homeschools the children, and the man, I know he doesn't make a ton of money, right? So I asked myself, how in the world could they possibly support nine children? Well, my daughter, my oldest daughter, went through that same period of time to the university, and God bless them, they're expecting their sixth. She's been pregnant eight times, but they lost two children in utero. But... That's just an example. There's at least 20 or 30 families that we could just mention that gave themselves to the church and to God and said, God, you do with our family what you want done. Well, people that are worried about having comfort, people that are worried about having an abundance of things, simply are not going to be that generous. But we need to be that generous if we're going to be God's apostles in the world. Well, the second thing that's a difference that these Desert Fathers challenge us on, and really the whole Christian tradition in the ancient world is against the modern propensity to solve our problems with techne. Techne, T-E-C-H-N-E, transcribed into English. Techne, by that, I don't mean technology necessarily, but our human creativity to come up with solutions to our problems and so i think this is one it was this belief that our problems can be solved with technical solutions in a broad sense this is why for example you see a rise in giving children medicines or drugs for things like add now when i was a boy they didn't know what to call it you they used to call it bouncing off the walls now they call it Uh, Yeah, ADD, but if there ever was an ADD child, you're watching, you're looking at it, because when I was a kid, I was absolutely, I was wacko. Well, it wasn't because I was a bad boy, I mean, I had good intentions, it's just that I had this ADD problem, but over time, and God's grace, and my cooperation with that grace, I was able to learn strategies for coping with that personality defect that I had. And God has helped me greatly. But what do we do today? Well, we say, get them a Ritalin. And I'm not saying there's not cases where that may be perfectly legitimate. But I've had pharmacist friends tell me that they're very worried about the degree to which MDs are prescribing medicines for people for, you know, psychological problems that really should be dealt with in other ways. That's just an example of how our modern world wants to solve problems from the outside and going in, rather than coming from the inside and going out in what, the, what we need to do. So my final question to all of us, to myself and to you, is this. Where's your desert? God is calling all of us in a way to the desert. We need to be in regular contact. With the things that we struggle with with our loneliness with our brokenness with our lostness we need to be able to face those things and that's not easy to do but it's the, precisely these places where we can begin to experience god's healing love and forgiveness in our lives i want to remind you of that quotation i gave you last week from henry Suzo the 13th century dominican He said, deepest failure is the fertile seed of highest resurrection. And so we need to have, ask God for the courage to be able to face our inner demons, so that by facing them, by putting them in the, before God and asking for forgiveness and healing and, and cleansing, that we can begin to make progress in the spiritual life. Now. Then let's go on, then, secondly, tonight and look at this Roman numeral two in uh, the outline, and that is what I've called tempering the desert by new circumstances and vocation. You and I cannot go out into the desert, and I presume we're not called to go out in the desert. So, how do we shift or how do we adapt what these desert fathers have talked about and put them into? A modern context. And how do we take their wisdom and live that wisdom today in different circumstances? Well, let me use another analogy that scripture uses. So far, we've used the analogy of the soldier. We remember that Saint Jerome talked about the fathers in the desert who go out to be alone with God. They are like soldiers for Christ. They're going to do battle with the devil. But there's also athletic metaphors within the Bible. You know, growing up as a kid, I like a lot of boys. You know, I loved athletics. And one of the things that you learn when you're learning to play athletics is that at least 50% of winning a game or running a race is mental. It's 50%. I was talking about with my grandson, who happens to be—he's kind of fast, and uh, he could get a lot faster too. And Maybe do something with that. But he tells me, you know, that and another boy in our school said the same thing. He was a year older than him. And he's pretty fast. And we were talking about running, and they were talking together about this terrible feeling that they get in their stomach when they're going to run a race. And I was encouraging them, by the way, that's just your body getting ready for some big event. Whether you're going to preach, like I used to a lot, or whether you're going to uh, run a race or whatever it is, your body is adjusting To that, it's not necessarily fear, but they interpret it as that. Well, you have to be ready mentally to do these things. Well, then let's transfer that and reverse it by saying, what about spiritual athletics? We want to run the race of the spirit. Well, then that means that we also have to use our bodies to that end because God did not make us angels. He made us human beings. And so we're psychophysical units, if you will, to use maybe a little bit of science fiction language. As a psychophysical units, as bodies and souls, these are inextricably inextricably bound in our our human nature. So we have to use our body. As Paul says, I beat my body in order to bring it into subjection that I may preach Christ uh, to the world. I'm reminded of that text in 2 Timothy, chapter 4 and verse 7, where Paul says, At the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. That language of athletics, I've run the race, is a kind of language that reminds us that as people, this spiritual battle is also a physical battle for us. And that's why we cannot forget what I reminded of you, I reminded you of last week. And that is the necessity of physical labor, because that's training for the deeper life by a ordered life of our daily experience, including physical work or exercise or something of that nature. This allows us to be able to also discipline our spirit. On the inside, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I've noticed in the last few years, when I when I was in my 30s and even in my 40s, I, mean, I could go sometimes two or three days with very little sleep, and I was physically fit and everything was fine. And now I've noticed that if I just go one night with even improper sleep, it really affects me the next day. And sometimes when I feel drowsy and and lethargic. I go out and I walk outside and I just feel completely different because our physical being Affects how we think and how we feel about things now. I think that naturally women Are very closer in touch with their bodies Than than men are at least than this man is because again, you know, I grew up with the idea You know you man up you you know You get up and you do it no matter what and you kind of ignore the the signs in your body Well, I can't do that anymore and in a way that's a blessing Because it reminds me, that yes, I am a man, I'm a human being, and I need to discipline my body. Remember that story that I shared with you last week that St. John Cassian tells us about, the story of Abba Paul uh, of Thebes, where he he would make baskets for a year in his hut. And normally they would take those baskets into the the town, and they would sell them in order to sustain their life out in the desert. But Abba Paul, as long as he had something to eat, he would burn the baskets. And he did that. And it says very explicitly that he made those baskets diligently and then he burned them because it wasn't just about the baskets, it was about the purging of his soul. And so, this relationship between the physical and the spiritual is very important for us pursuing the life of holiness. Well, as we think about that, I turned back this week again to to St. John Cassian, and I would strongly recommend you reading his conferences and his institutions, because those writings are, I think, along with the Vigilus of Ponticus, who I'll quote in just a moment. These are some of the most systematic writings that came out of the experience of the Desert Fathers. Now, the reason for that is this: St. John Cassian lived in the desert, but he was then went to rome and then he went to marseille on the coast of the southern coast of france where he founded two monasteries one for men uh, the other for women and and he wrote he wasn't going to write anything but one of the bishops asked him to write something down about the wisdom of the fathers and i think it might be fair to say that had they not asked him to do that we wouldn't have had such a clear exposition of the wisdom of these desert fathers but in there as well as uh, in other writers like Evagrius, they identify eight different vices that constantly plague us as human beings they notice them in the monks they notice them in their cells and others and they list them out gluttony lust avarice pride sadness or despair anger vainglory and acedia gluttony is a violation of moderation and gluttony of course is eating too much and of course that's a great temptation for a lot of people today but nevertheless it can't be just limited to that it means any excess in our lives which we really do not need now you may notice behind me there's a few books in my in my office here at home and I used to joke around when I was younger and I'd say, you know, um, when I get my paycheck, first I buy books that don't have any money and then I buy food. You know, Well, because I've been a book collector for, since I was a young man. But even that can be wrong in the sense that if I buy things unnecessarily or things that really don't do me any good, I've always, in my defense, I have to say I've always tried to buy good books. But nevertheless, uh, that even that could be a form of gluttony. The second one that they identify is lust. And that, of course, is opposed to purity of heart. And it reminds me of the Lord's words in Matthew 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is quoted extensively in the church fathers and in the medievals when they talk about the beatific vision of seeing and being with God. How are we going to be with God? Well, we cannot be with God without purity of heart. And when we continue to entertain things that are going to be, as it were, what we call creature comforts, things that are going to distract us from that purity of heart, they become obstacles to that eventually enjoying eternal life with God. The third one that they mention is avarice. Avarice, of course, is greed or the love of money, and that's opposed to being content with one's situation. I'm reminded of the words of St. Paul at the end of First Timothy, and I'll just I'll read and translate this for you. This is in First Timothy chapter 6, where at the end of verse 6, he says, there are those who suppose that gain is godliness. But he says, godliness with contentment, Is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain or great profit. And then just a few uh, verses later, he goes, Those who want to be rich in this world fall into the temptation and trap of the devil. They have irrational and harmful desires, which leads men to destruction and to perdition. And then he gives the reason for the root of all evil is the love of money. Now, he is talking about money in the context, but perhaps we could expand that to anything in which commands our attention that we feel that we need to, to please ourselves over and over and over again. You know, I was very proud of my, my seniors in the high school this past week because I made a statement in class And I asked them to honestly agree or to disagree. And I said this, the more that we focus on ourselves, the unhappier we become. The more that we focus on others, the happier we become. And then they picked up the chant, as it were, and developed it and said, yes, that's absolutely right. And then one of them even said, well, that's like what Jesus said. Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple well, that gives me great encouragement about the future. But the more that we focus on pleasing ourselves, the less we are likely to be willing to please God. And that, of course, leads to the next one, and that is pride, and that's opposite, obviously, is humility. One that might surprise us is that feeling of sadness or discouragement, which taken to an extreme is despair. And that's the difference between a person that looks at the life, looks at life as it were, the glass is only is half empty versus the glass is half full. It's seeing the positive even in the most negative of situations. One of the religious sisters that taught with me at the high school, she's now been called to a different form of service, but her name was Sister Mariella, but I used to call her Sister Joy because every day you'd come in and she was full of joy. And she was full of happiness, and it didn't matter what she was facing. She was just always had a positive outlook on life. And so I used to say, God, please give me a joy like Sister Ella has, because that's what I need, that positive outlook. One that we talked about last week is the demon of anger. And obviously that's contrast with inner contentment and, and inner peace. We talked about that last week, so I won't elaborate on that. And then we also talked about vainglory. But I've been asking myself this week, what's the opposite? What's the virtue that is in contrast to vainglory? Remember we talked about vainglory as glorying in things that that make us feel good, like maybe our looks or maybe, uh, maybe our wealth or maybe our accomplishments or maybe in our circumstances of life. But again, I think that might the opposite of that might be more joy in spiritual realities. It's the sense that what's most important in my life is to be with God. And uh, although this is not on the outline, I might encourage you if you haven't read these Psalms in a way. Let me encourage you to read Psalm twenty-five, Psalm eighty-four, Psalm I think it's forty-six or forty-seven and uh, psalm 63 maybe these psalms oh in psalm 42 don't forget that one psalm 42 is the one that begins as the as the deer pants after the waters so my soul pants for you oh god this expresses the longing that the godly Je- israelite of old had for the temple of god now i don't know if you've ever experienced this but some days it doesn't matter what day i've had when I mean, there's gone well or gone badly, if I will just take a few minutes and quiet myself in the presence of Jesus in the blessed sacrament and remind myself that he really is there and that he really looks into my soul with his loving gaze, my whole day changes because my attention now is directed toward the joy of knowing God, and the thought the thought that runs through my mind often in that position is, Lord, this is truly my home. This is where I belong. Before you, in your presence, I see you. I love you. I know that you love me. Help me to love you more. I think that's the contrast with vain glory. And then the last one that they identify is Acedia. Now, I want to focus on that one a little bit more for two reasons. Several of the Desert Fathers say this is the most difficult demon to deal with. But also, it's difficult to deal with because it's difficult to identify exactly what it consists of. Now, I know when I have lustful thoughts, or I know when I'm tempted to want things in my life that is avarice, or when I'm tempted to be angry about something. But Assyria is more difficult to identify. And I've listed three uh, monastic authors there, and I'm going to read to you a little bit of what they say. First, Evagrius of Ponticus, like John Cassian, was one of the most extensive writers uh, among the Desert Fathers. Evagrius has this to say: The demon of Assidia comes calling and is more burdensome than any of the other demons. It comes on a monk at about the fourth hour, so it's about the late morning, and surrounds him until the eighth hour, that is in the mid or late afternoon. It first makes the sun appear to stand still or move very slowly. It makes the day seem like it's 50 hours long. And then he makes the monk look out his window and want to leave his cell and to gaze intently at the sun. And finally, he goes away at about the ninth hour. So apparently this was an experience that these monks who had devoted themselves to prayer in the midday after they'd been praying all morning, they sort of begin to say, oh, I don't know, I'm getting bored. I don't know what to do with my life. You know, maybe you can imagine all the thoughts that would come into their mind. Another writer, another monk, was Nicholas of Ankara. This is what he has to say. The spirit of Assidia is always at war with the monk. It comes on him especially at the sixth hour and is sometimes called the noonday demon. It strikes terror and sloth. Now, the Greek word there is atonia, which means laziness. In other words, he just becomes apathetic about things. It strikes him with terror and sloth, uh, as well as hatred of his place. Remember I talked about last week that, that feeling of I just got to get out of this place? It leads him to apathy about prayer and reading of scripture. It brings up thoughts of changing his situation. It typically turns him away from prayer, from reading scripture, from endurance and perseverance. And it turns him away from the renunciation of idle chatter, which is part of what the monk wants to do. He wants to be out silent. But he begins to want to talk to everybody about things. And even from working with his hands. So this description of of these men in this desert situation, uh, we're going to ask in just a moment, well, how does that apply to us? But I think you can already begin to see in ways in which it still has something to say to us today. And then finally, I think I read this last week, but John Cassian, again on Assyria. They feel the many-winged folly of their soul, nor that can they control its wanton forays. Contrition of spirit comes hard to them. They find the perpetual silence intolerable, and these that no labor on land could weary are vanquished. By idleness and worn out by the long lasting of their peace. In other words, ascidia is a deep seated discontentment with one's place and vocation in life. Well, if that's not a description of modern times, I don't know what is. How many people work in jobs in which they lament going to work every day because they simply are doing it to? To, to have a paycheck, and and so there there or discontentment about marriage and children. Well, when you have children, especially perhaps when you have more of them, you have three or four or more children. Yes, it's a huge task to be able to raise them, and you have to take the long view in the sense of someday they're going to bring me great joy, but right now they're a real challenge in raising these kids. You know, and so. The heart can easily say, oh, maybe I should have chosen a different form of life. But God's called us to that marriage, to that woman, to that man, to those children. And those people desperately need us in their lives. So when we have the discouragement or discontentment about our marriage or our family or our job or something like that, That's ascidia trying to exercise. The devil is trying to to draw us away and to make us discontent with our situation. Whereas the man of God, the woman of God says, God, help me to find, like my friend Sister Mariella, help me to find joy in this situation today. Well, how do we overcome ascidia? Well, I wish I could sprinkle the fairy dust on you and that would take care of the problem. <laughs> but the problem is, I don't know exactly how one overcomes this. Except the Desert Fathers all say that the key is perseverance. I'll read from again from Nick Nihilus of Ankara Perseverance heals acedia, along with watchfulness in prayer. One must have great watchfulness and fear of God. Set up a measured order in your work. Now that phrase there could be translated several ways, but I think what he's saying is set your day in a regular order and stick to that order. But most of all, don't abandon your work before you have completed it. If you started a basket, finish the basket. If you started building the, the fence outside, you know, around your house, Finish the fence. Keep at it. And this one particularly struck me because I'm what I'm calling 90%er. You know, I get 90% of my work done and then I'm just kind of, oh, well, you know, let it go. But I need this virtue of perseverance. Here's what he says. Pray constantly and fervently and the spirit of Assyria will flee you. All right. So if you've never learned, I mentioned last week, I really encourage you, in addition to whatever armamentarium of prayer you have, whether it's the rosary or divine mercy chaplet, whether it's mental prayer, you might want to add that beautiful prayer that our Eastern brother, Catholic brothers and sisters use, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Whether you're at work, driving down the street, whatever, changing diapers, whatever you're doing, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. A sinner. That makes us easier for us to accept divine providence in our lives. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Our first response should not be to attempt to change our lives, but to attempt to accept the things that we cannot change. The famous Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr has that famous Serenity Prayer, you know, that they use in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a good prayer. He says, Lord, help me to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And there's a lot of of wisdom in that. The third thing that I want to share with you tonight is how this wisdom of the Desert Fathers was then developed in the rest of the Church Fathers, so as to bring us to where we are today. And this actually takes us back to that beautiful reading that Father Hezekiah gave us earlier from uh, Father Robert Taft, the Eastern Liturgy expert. In the Greek Fathers of the Church, they repeatedly talk about theosis, or in the West it was called deification or divinization. And basically what it means is this that the ancient church, both East and West, I think were united in their understanding of salvation. Now, this may not mean much to you if you grew up Catholic, but as a Protestant, it meant a tremendous amount to me because Protestants tend to look at salvation as a legal transaction. In other words, I believe in Jesus, and then God stamps my passport and says, okay, you can get into heaven because you've believed in Jesus. But the more that I read scripture, the more that I go and read scripture through the wisdom of the fathers, I find that there's a different vision here, and that is the vision of theosis. The vision that Jesus himself said when he was here on earth in that famous prayer in John chapter 17, what's sometimes called the high priestly prayer, where he says, Father, I pray that they may be one As we are one, and that they all may be one, as you Father are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us. Now think about those words for just a moment. Not Jesus that Jesus just wants us to come together as Christians. He wants to infuse the oneness of the trinitarian life of God inside of our souls, so that we will be inextricably bound to one another and to God. So that the unity which the church needs is not a negotiated unity, it's a supernatural unity. It's a divine unity that comes from the very work of God in our souls. The other person who says this so beautifully is St. Peter himself. He says in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says that he has provided all things necessary for life and godliness. And he says he does this through a participation in the divine nature. The the church fathers, especially the Greek fathers, quote this all the time, that it's through participation in the divine nature that we become like God. We Have the image of God. We've never lost that. We did lose the likeness of God. And that likeness of God is restored within us as God's own life is lived in and through us. And how does that take place? It takes place through prayer, through commitment, like these desert fathers did, the commitment to silence. But there's one place. That is privileged above all, and that is the liturgy of the church. You see, you and I can pray individually, and we might be open-hearted enough for God to to infuse this mystical vision within us. But we know for certain that, however we feel, whether positive or negative, whether ready or dull or apathetic, the liturgy of the church always has the communication of grace and by the way there's an eastern writer he's actually goes more toward the medieval what we call the medieval byzantine time nicholas Cabasilas. he wrote a book called the life in christ or life in christ and it's been translated he also did another commentary on the divine liturgy which the liturgy of the eastern church and these are very good books, and he, he talks about this a lot. Now, because he was in, I think, the 13th or 14th century in Byzantium, he has a lot to draw upon from the fathers. And basically what he says is that through participation in the liturgy of the church, we experience koinonia, that sharing in that common life, which comes down from God and is infused into our souls. This summer, I'm going to be participating in a seminar with an Orthodox and a a, uh, Reformed or Protestant theologian. And we're going to be talking about this very idea of theosis uh, much more in depth. And one of the things that I've learned so far, and we'll learn no, no doubt more about it, is, you see, God doesn't want us just to be with him. He wants us to be in him. And he in us so completely that we are caught up we are enraptured into the, the worship of his divine being as he reaches out to us through his energies as he exerts his influence upon our souls he draws us up and restores us from glory to glory as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 where he says as we behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror we are being transformed, we are being metamorphosized into the glory of God. So let me give you then these five things I've listed there as final encouragements. Participation in the liturgy of the church is essential. And that may mean the divine liturgy itself, the celebration of the Eucharist, but also means the sacrament of reconciliation. It may mean various types of prayer that we can do, whether either alone, but we'll be in union with the Church, or actually participating physically with others, I want to encourage you too, as we end this series, to do what many of these Desert Fathers did, was to memorize Sacred Scripture. Scripture is not just to be read, but to be internalized. Now, uh, for example, if we look in the the Western world, in the Medieval West, there were extensive books written in the medieval times about the development of our memories and what they understood that modern people do not understand is that memorization was the doorway into internalization see we tend to think of memory as being rote memorization you know like you memorize a greek verb like lego leges legai and so forth you know and it's sort of boring and meaningless But they understood it to be that as I memorize things, I'm actually putting them inside the deepest level of my being. The third thing is then in a practical way in our outward life and in our inward life is get rid of the clutter. Live simply that others may simply live, as I think it was Mother Teresa that said that. We need to live simpler lives. And that might not be simpler just in terms of money or in possessions, but it might be in terms of time. Because I don't know about you, but one of my most precious commodities is time. I just never seem to have enough of it. Right? And so I need to work on disciplining my life to do the things that are most important. Perhaps you share that, that need as well. But also another quotation from Mother Teresa that, actually brings us back to that vice of asidia, And that is to do whatever small things we do, to do them with great love. I don't think we realize that probably when we're in heaven someday and able to look back upon our life, what we will see is not the things that we accomplished, but the way that we lived while we were accomplishing them. So that people were watching us, be they younger people like students, or children, or grandchildren, or whatever. So that the way that we live simply has to be a natural overflow of what's inside of our souls. Lastly, most of all, I think, is that we need to stay true to our vocation, whatever that is. Now in my own life, several times I've gone away for a day or two at a time, And have asked my God, God, what am I doing what you want me to do? Am I really following my vocation? And I remember two particular times I took, well, three or four days. My wife was very generous with her time. And she said, yeah, you go away and pray about this and so forth. And every time I came, the two times that I remember particularly, I came back and you know what the answer was? Yep, you're doing the right thing. Hang in there with your vocation and do what God has called you to do, right? Because vocation is a balance between our outward responsibilities and that inward drive for what God wants us to do. But in our vocation, let me encourage you to adopt a new verb, to monasticize your life. That is to say, to make your life more and more a life of prayer. And whatever we do, we can always surround it with prayer. We can always let prayer infiltrate the duties that we have every day. And I'll just end with one real personal story in that way that was very meaningful to me. just happened this morning. When I got to school this morning, yesterday I was giving a quiz to my students today. And yesterday as we were discussing the quiz, one of the young ladies got so out of of sorts and she was, oh, I'm just going to die, you know. You know, this is terrible. Well, it just so happens that she was involved in like five other events, one of them which is the the school play that she's has a major part in. So she's feeling extremely stressed. And so she really expressed it yesterday in class. And I said, Well, you just need to ask God to help you with this. Well, maybe that maybe I shouldn't have said it quite that blandly, but although that is true. And, well, this morning she came in and she said, Doctor Howell, I have to go away to do this other thing today. So can I be excuse and take the quiz tomorrow and i said yes okay you can and she said i wanted to apologize yesterday for blurting out in class like that because i you know i shouldn't have done that there's no excuse for that and i said well i forgive you and uh, you know you're you're a good you're a good student and you're more importantly you're a good young lady so thank you for coming and and talking about it and uh, try to try to trust in god you know you've got this play coming up you got these other things that you're doing but Surround it all with prayer. So whatever we're doing in our lives, both in marriage, in our work outside, let's monasticize our life. Let's make it a life of prayer in all that we do. Again, I want to thank all of you that I see on the screen and many more that I don't see on the screen. Uh, Thank you for, for coming these three weeks because I certainly have enjoyed it and I hope in some small way it's been of some, some service to you.
3: Thank you so much, Doctor Hal. This is just a wonderful series. All right, I'm going to look at the Q and A box here, and then we will we'll, uh, jump right in here. Doctor Hal, Ashton asks, "Would you please recommend a book or some readings on understanding and discerning ascetia and means of overcoming it?"
2: Yes, and actually, I think you got that um, outline or that that list of books. Uh, that I sent you, Andy. The one that I found the most helpful is by Kathleen Norris. Kathleen Norris became kind of well-known because she wrote this book called The Cloister Walk. I think it was about, I don't know how many years ago, not, not very long ago, she wrote a book called Acidia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. So she's a modern woman who's trying to understand the value of the um, Desert Fathers' discussions of Assyria and apply them to life. And I think several of the things that I've already said are relevant here. You know, just to reiterate, the need to persevere, to uh, be convinced that God has a vocation for me or for you, and living that vocation in a daily way. Yeah, again, to, to, to draw on the athletic analogy, when we see those great athletes, let's say, in the Olympics, uh, and then they ask, well, how long have you been training them? My whole life, they say. I mean, the hours and hours and endless work that these people had that put into being able to run one race or to jump over a bar one time, this is something. It's the same way with us. Jumping over that bar, hitting the tape in a race, at the end of the race, our, our, our tape is heaven. Now, we have to work at that. And I think that uh, the acedia, the problem that we fall face, is a problem that we have to sort of identify in the culture around us. Now, don't be afraid also to go online and just type in acedia. The article about Avaegrius Pondicus, as I recall, or John Cassian, on Wikipedia is not too bad. And it will give you links that you can go to other places as well
3: nadia john asks can you explain how we can make everything we do a prayer
2: i think it really comes down to our attitude toward toward things paul in romans 12 says i appeal to you brothers through the mercies of god to present your bodies a living sacrifice to god Which is your reasonable service, or as the the Greek says, your your logical service, your logikain. But it's a sacrifice. So everything we do is a sacrifice, as they used in the Old Testament of thanksgiving, a todah, a thank, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. It's saying on the one hand, God, thank you for this moment. That it's not by accident that I am here where I am and doing what I'm doing. I'm here under your providence and your guidance. So Lord, I offer this back to you as a sacrifice. Then also remember that this can be a spur to us to remain faithful to complete the task. St Ignatius of Loyola, the great founder of the Society of Jesus, talked about the tale of the dragon which when we're doing a work for God, we can sometimes become lax at the, as we move to the end of that work and we sort of let it fall apart. And that he calls the, the tail of the dragon. Hmm. We don't want to let that dragon's tail get in there. We want to persevere and do our very best to the end of that. So it's putting forth our best effort that we have, knowing that the perfect is rarely achievable, but we're going to do whatever good we can And we give that to God in sacrifice. And then as we're actually in the activity to have it in our minds that we're using this as an act of prayer. You know, we're the only creatures on the face of the earth that can think about two things at one. For example, I'm talking to you right now, but I have an image of my wife's face in my mind. Now, we can do that. And we're the only creatures on the face of the earth. can do that because you have consciousness. Now, in the same way, when I'm engaged into an activity, perhaps in the back of my mind, I can say, God, please accept this as my offering back to you.
3: Why don't we go ahead and end with this question right here. Okay, Andrea asks, what does it mean to be watchful in prayer?
2: Yes, that's an excellent question. And if I knew the answer to that, I would be glad to tell you. But that is to say, I, I haven't learned to practice it yet. But perhaps what it means, it goes back to asidia. Remember, asidia is this temptation to always be distracted. And watchfulness in prayer means that I'm going to be focused on the prayer that I'm doing. <clears throat> it means that I'm going to um, be careful not to allow other things to intrude on my prayer. So let me give you a practical example. I always have a pad of paper next to me when I'm sitting in my sunroom in the morning praying because when I'm praying, either the daily office or the rosary or something, uh, these thoughts come into my mind. Oh, I need to do this today. I need to do that. So what I do is I write it down to remind myself that I can forget about it for a few minutes and I can come back and I can focus on it. So there's one little practical technique that, that we can do. The other thing is to set aside times of silence when we know we're not going to be disturbed. And in the case of like Andy, you know, with his children at home, he's a young father, his wife needs to give him that time, and he needs to give her that time as well to spend time alone in prayer. Or in the case of a married couple that, wants to pray together. My wife and I always pray evening prayer together after we eat dinner. You know, sometimes our grandson, one of our grandsons is with us, and we say, well, you're welcome to join us, but if you don't want to, we're going to pray now, so don't disturb us, you know. And he's old enough to, to uh, acknowledge and to, to respect that. So watchfulness in prayer means that we, I think, try to keep focused on, on prayer at that moment.
3: Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Howell, and uh, thank you for being so generous with your time, too, with us. Well, thank you. Just to to add another little practical thing regarding for prayer, one thing that I found very helpful that that helps me focus, and at first it may seem a little bit silly, but using a timer, and not to limit your prayer, but to let you forget about the time, because sometimes This temptation enters into your mind of like, uh, I'm going to lose track of time, right? And I'm going to miss thing X or I'm going to miss thing Y. I mean, a lot of us, for better or for worse, have these smartphones with us all the time. You've got a watch or whatever. You can just set a time. If you know you've got to be out of that room in 10 minutes, instead of letting your prayer get interrupted every 30 seconds thinking, has that 10 minutes been up? Just set a timer and then forget about it. And it lets you kind of just enter into that moment, and you kind of forget about time, and you don't have to worry about forgetting about it. <laughs> you know what I mean,
0: when I think of pray always and do not lose hope, and and so I think of being watchful in prayer also as looking for opportunities throughout the, the day to to praise God, to be thankful, and to offer gratitude.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely true.
0: Yeah. I
3: think um, I think that also ties in with the question that was right before that as. How do we turn our everyday actions into prayer? Yeah. Part yeah. of that is just practicing uh, more presence of mind. Yeah. God is involved in every single thing that you're doing. And you wouldn't be existing right now unless he was with you. Yeah. In your breath. Yes, yeah, exactly. In your
0: breath. yeah. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.